You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Rocky Lalvani from Richer Soul, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. This is Nee Darko from Docs Outside the Box, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. My name is Gita Lalvani from Help Me Be Great, and you are listening to the What's Up Next podcast. I'm Paula Pant, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Welcome to What's Up Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence. Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson from Ready Investor One. And this is Doc G from Diversify.com. So, Paul Thompson, what's up next? Well, Doc, I'm really excited about today's conversation because I really enjoy thinking about how our culture influences our behavior. The Five Movement talks about pushing back against the popular American mass media culture that is constantly encouraging us to consume. So we have four guests on the line today that represent each of three different countries of origin. And so we're going to be asking them to open up the discussion about is it an advantage or a disadvantage to be an immigrant in the U.S. on your path to financial independence. So I'll give each of you a chance to do a quick introduction, and let's start with Paula. Can you give us a quick intro? Sure. My name's Paula Pant. I have a podcast called Afford Anything, and I was born in Kathmandu, Nepal. I came to the United States when I was a baby. I was still in diapers and grew up in the U.S., and during the school years, I'd spend the school years in the U.S. and then the summers in Nepal. So I grew up in between both cultures. And we'll move on to next. Rocky, do you mind giving us a quick introduction, please? I'm Rocky Lalvani. I am from India, and I also came here when I was very young. I came at the age of two, and my parents came to the United States to create the American dream and to live it out. The streets are paved in gold, and that's what they wanted. Wonderful. Thanks for being on here. Uh, Gita, can you give us a quick introduction, please? So my name is Gita and I'm Rocky's daughter. So obviously he's told you his story and my mom also came over to the United States, but I was born here. So I've kind of been raised mostly American, but also uh, with a heavy Indian influence. So I might have a little bit of a unique story there. I run a blog called Help Me Be Great and it talks about how to introduce yourself to more advanced topics like business, finance, personal finance, those kinds of things as a teenager. And I'm currently in New York City at the King's College studying business management. Wonderful. We're looking forward to getting your perspective. Nee, can you give us a quick introduction, please, sir? 
Yeah, uh, my name is Nee Darko. I host a podcast, Docs Outside the Box. It's a podcast about ordinary doctors who do extraordinary things outside of medicine. I was born here in the United States. I'm a first generation, and both of my parents are from Ghana, West Africa. I was born here, and I was raised as an American, but with a very similar to Gita, very heavily influenced by the Ghanaian experience, eating all the foods, speaking the language, clothing, and so forth. Uh, so kind of having this dichotomy mix max of being American in a home and also being African. All right. So we're going to start off today with a fill in the blank question. And I'm going to run through the whole panel and I'm going to start with you, Paula. You know you're the child of an immigrant when, and I'm going to answer this first. I am not the child of an immigrant, but I've grown up eating at tables where I usually don't speak the same language as the people I'm with. So I would say, you know, you're the child of an immigrant when instead of having Tupperware, all of the food is stored in containers that are reused from something else that was bought at the grocery store. <laughs> yeah. So Paula, you know, you're the child of an immigrant when... The dishwasher is used as a drying rack rather than as a machine that's operated. Yeah, I've definitely seen that one. And, and Nee, I saw you shaking your head there. Nee, you know you're the child of an immigrant when? Actually, Paula stole my thunder because <laughs> that's a very similar thing. Like, There is no such thing as a dishwasher in my household. I am the dishwasher. you know. And I hopefully, my whole uh, life is to make sure that my son is raised not knowing how to use the dishwasher also. <laughs> it's good that Ghana and Nepal are so similar culturally. <laughs> All right, Rocky, you know you are the child of an immigrant when? You've got three generations living in the same household, and they've all got very different viewpoints of how to live life and what it means to fit in. And the way you do things is just vastly different than everyone else around you. Aha. All right. Gita, you know you're the child of an immigrant or at least the grandchild of an immigrant when... You never buy anything without checking to see if it's on sale first or if you can find a coupon. So, Paula, this interests me, right? Because I just asked you guys all about some of the defining characteristics of being a child of an immigrant are. And a lot of the things you guys have said sound strangely like financial independence principles too, right? So we've got reusing materials so that you don't have to buy new ones. We have multi-purposing dishwasher. We have three generations living in one probably small cramped house. So what's the deal here? Is the script of the immigrant similar to that of financial independence? I think in many ways it is, yes. I think that many of the ways that we as immigrants live that sense of what's normal is the type of living that in the FI community is considered, you know, specific to the FI community, right? So in other words, when you go on blogs and you read tips for people who want to achieve FI or just tips for people who want to live a more frugal lifestyle, sometimes it can be strange to read that because you think to yourself, wait a minute, this isn't frugal. This is just normal. Like, this is just how you live. What are you talking about? Nia, when you got involved in the personal finance community, if you had your kind of the same shake your head moment saying, this is not, you know, financial independence stuff. This is just what you do. 
You know, it's funny you mention that because, you know, obviously uh, people listen to Dave Ramsey and he talks about the beans and rice uh, meal. And I look at my wife and I'm, she's from Haiti, which is obviously, uh, you know, a country that has some economical issues too. But like beans and rice, rice and beans, whichever way you want to look at it, that's like staples for us, right? So growing up, like meat was just like, you had a little small amount of meat, but the main dish was like rice or some type of starch or carbohydrate. So I agree with Paula, like, like these are just things that are just normal in your life, right? Normal in my life. So it's really funny. Like when you hear things from, you know, FI or hear things along the personal finance realms, it's just things that were normal in my life, right? And, you know, before all the excess of, you know, consuming things from outside external sources came in. So for me, it was just really just living my life the way how I was normally raised. And Rocky, I've heard you talk about before growing up in your community. And not only were these ideas of frugality and these kind of financially independent ideas prevalent, but you guys also would talk about money, which is something that your typical American doesn't feel comfortable talking about in family settings. Tell us a little bit about that. That was just commonplace. As I was growing up, everyone would talk about money. My parents would get together with their friends and they would all compare notes. How are you doing kind of on your path of the American dream? How much are you making? People would share how much their kids were making, how much they paid for their house, what kind of a deal they negotiated on something. I mean, in India, you don't walk into somewhere and pay the price that's listed. Everything's negotiable. So it's just a constant back and forth on money. And people are always kind of in a sense squabbling over it. And you're always looking for a great deal. So Gita, you know, we really like to talk about things like frugality, but we also talking about this whole phenomena of keeping up with the Joneses. So what your dad is saying is that when your community got together, you talked about finances, you talked about how you saved money. Was there an aspect of, I don't know, how should I say, keeping up with the Patels too? For me personally, in my life, I guess we always talked about it at home. That was never a conversation that I had with my friends because my friends are mostly American by this point, just because I'm not living in a secluded like Indian community like I think my parents did when they were younger. It was always something that they did feel comfortable talking about in the house, though, and it's something that I'm grateful for. Paula, I'm wondering if the same was for you. Within your community, I don't know if you grew up with around a lot of people who are also from Nepal, but were your parents as free talking about money and economic issues? No, we never discussed money. Absolutely never. So yeah, my parents, they definitely lived in a a Nepalese American bubble very much. Like all of their friends are Nepalese Americans, but we never discussed money growing up other than like couponing and saving. You know, I, I would watch my mom go to three different grocery stores because bananas were cheaper at one and milk was cheaper at the next and bread was cheaper at the next. You know, so I would see money in the context of you can buy that for cheaper over there, but we never had any bigger conversations about money other than that. So Nia, I think within different immigrant communities, you probably have some that do talk about money and some that don't, but it seems like most immigrant communities talk a lot about hustle. Tell me about what your expectations were as a child of immigrants for how hard you would work at school and success. That's something that's just never left me. I mean, I think the whole, 
you know, notion of you just kind of just work until you just work until you just kind of fall out is just that type of energy is what I got from my parents. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, maybe having one job or having two jobs, sometimes even three jobs at the same time was something that I was kind of used to seeing my parents do. And to this day, honestly, I cannot recall a day that my dad or my mother just literally just took a day off from work. And, you know, that kind of translated to me as a trauma surgeon. Um, I work like that, obviously, for obvious reasons. You have a craft that you need to develop. But also at the same time, there's some negatives that go along with that also. So that scares me sometimes. Like, do I have that kind of workaholic, you know, work ethic? So that's something that definitely I saw growing up. Money was something that we didn't talk about much at all besides just save, possibly even invest. But literally, that's as far as it ever went. It never went, you know, you should consider putting yourself your money in this stock or in that investment thing. It's just literally just save, save, go to school, you'll be in a better position, read, that's pretty much it. So Gita, like the typical immigrant parent tells their child, they don't ask them what they want to be when they grow up, right? They tell them you're going to be a doctor, right? Or you're going to be a lawyer or an engineer. If the messages you got from your grandparents were the same as the messages you got from your father and mother, were you getting those messages about certain professions or what you should be doing? It's kind of funny because I didn't really get those messages directly from my parents. I think they were there for sure indirectly, but from my grandparents, the biggest thing was my grandma would always say, don't become a teacher. I got a lot more pressure actually from my aunts and uncles. They would go down a little list. So first it would be, are you going to be a doctor? And I would say no. And then it would be, are you going to be an engineer? And I would say no. And then they would say, oh, are you going into business? And I would say, yeah business. That works because that's pretty vague. So like I figure I can work something in there and they'd be pretty satisfied with that answer, but I don't want to know what would happen if they kept going down the list. I'm not sure where that would go. Rocky, let me ask you, did you feel like you had to protect Gita from being pigeonholed into one of those typical professions that grandparents and aunts and uncles tell their family members they have to be in? I think we're a bit more open in that we didn't want to decide for our kids what they should do. We just wanted them to have the skills to be successful. I think we understood that if you have the skills to be successful, you'll be successful wherever you go. And I see doctors in my work all the time. So I understand how hard they work and how difficult their life is and how much they give up. And I see what's kind of coming in the future for them. So I'm like, I would never push for that one. She's not an engineer. My son's the engineer. So we'll push him for that. I think it's a match of figure out what's a good fit for you and what works for your life versus me deciding for you. Because that's just going to be a lifelong fight that we don't want to have. Paula, you're listening to what Rocky just said in the conversation he's having with his daughter. Could you imagine having the same conversation with your parents? Look, Paula, think about what fits you best. Don't worry about being a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer. Would they have that kind of conversation with you? Well, when I was growing up, at parties, certainly, when just other people in the Nepali American community would come over, they would say things like, so are you going to be a doctor or an engineer? Like that was a question every single person asked me. It was never, what are you going to be when you grow up? It's, are you going to be a doctor or an engineer? With my parents, however, they were very open in that they recognized early on that I had zero skill set in the math and sciences. Like the traditional STEM occupations were just clearly, as a student academically, it was clearly not where my skill was. My skill set was obviously in reading and writing. And that showed up as early as kindergarten, first grade. So it became clear that because STEM was not going to be where I would excel, 
then the conversation basically became, all right, you'll be a lawyer. And that was how I coasted for basically my entire life. I was like, all right, well, then, then that's the option. And was journalism acceptable to them? Isn't that how you started your career? Actually, so I majored in sociology, which my parents were embarrassed to admit to. So they told everybody that I was pre-law because technically pre-law is not a major. So my entire undergrad career, everyone could get by pretending that I was going to go into law school afterwards. And then when I finished undergrad, I went into working for a newspaper without a journalism degree. And they really struggled with the fact that I didn't go to grad school. That was a big point of contention for a very, very long time, as late as a few years ago. Like they strongly felt that my education and probably still do feel as though my education is incomplete. Nia, Paula talks about grad school. You went to medical school. Most immigrants come to the United States with nothing. Most come with a net worth of zero or less. To go to grad school, to go to medical school, you actually have to go into a huge amount of debt. It seems interesting to me. I don't see taking on debt as something that is part of that immigrant script. And yet it's okay if it has to do with education. Were your parents uncomfortable with this idea of medical school and spending a lot to get where you had to go? I don't think they really understood all the concepts behind becoming a doctor. I think similar to Paula's description, it's just one of the, at least in my background and my upbringing, you know, being either a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer was one of the safe things that you did. And being a first generation immigrant getting here, the thing that they wanted and what they pressed upon was stability, right? But I don't think they really understood all the things that really went behind being a doctor, all the years that you're going to be away from family to sacrifice the debt and so forth. It really wasn't until a couple of years that my parents really understood that me and my wife were both almost $700,000 in student loan debt. They didn't really understand that. They just understood that a doctor did well, was held in high regard in society, but in terms of the background, didn't really understand that. Although I, you know, I was given the choice between a doctor and a lawyer, they really didn't push it on me, but you, it was inferred you know, that this is what you really should do. And, you know, we came from across the Atlantic Ocean and, you know, my dad worked in a sandwich shop and kind of worked his way up to becoming, you know, a computer engineer. It was just kind of one of those things like, well, if he can do it, then you definitely will be doing, you know, something in either as a lawyer or a doctor or engineer. But once they really understand and understand like the breakdown, like this is how much debt like I really am in now, you know, they look back and they're like, wow, like we didn't know that that's what it really took. And I think now they start to say like, well, now that you have a son, will you push your son into that path? And obviously for me, it's like he's going to be able to do whatever he wants to do. I think they paid the sacrifice and then I'm sacrificing more to allow my children to kind of have that runway to do things that I wish I had when I was younger. So it's funny, when I graduated from college, no one said, oh, congratulations, you graduated from college. All they said was, so where are you going for your master's? And at that point, I was like, I didn't even want to come to college. I'm sick of school. You know, we'll talk about that some other day. I eventually did go back for other reasons, but the expectation for education is always there. And it's funny because my daughter will tell you, you know, we have a saying in our house, you are Asian, not Bijan. Get the grade. Gita, do you feel like your friends who are not Asian almost just expect this of you? They expect you to get the good grades? They expect you to go to graduate school? They definitely expected me to get the grades, especially in certain classes like math and science. I would always have other students asking me for help. They just assumed that I knew what I was doing and that I was getting A's on everything. There was a few of us. I was at a pretty small private school up through 10th grade, so there was a 
healthy competition going since there was just a class of like 15 of us. But um, it was kind of expected that I would want to continue through grad school, but I always said that I wasn't interested, that I was just going to do undergrad. Even I was thinking about not doing undergrad, to be quite honest, because of the cost and how the world is kind of changing. And I'm glad that my parents allowed me to make an informed decision there and say, you know what, I am going to go to college and this is why I'm going and this is why I think it's worth it rather than just assuming that I had to go to college. So I want to pull on that thread a little bit further because I have I have a lot of friends that are also immigrants and it is just a very common theme. This is almost a pervasive opinion that amongst the immigrant community that you are going to go to not just college, but to a graduate level. And yet in the more American style families, cultural background, there are certainly a lot of them that expect you to go to college. But why is there this higher expectation for traditional, it seems like traditionally Asian families want to expect you to excel to that level of graduate school. I think number one, that higher levels of education are a differentiator. So if you want to try to succeed in some other way, like such as through entrepreneurship, there can be low barriers to entry to a lot of different types of entrepreneurship. And there's no specific differentiator. But if you go to grad school, all of a sudden you have something that sets you apart from the majority of society and that makes you more marketable. And I think that parents really want for their kids is that stability. You know, we're here, we're in this new country, we don't have family that we can rely on. So let's just get to something that's as stable as possible. Entrepreneurship is risky, but becoming a lawyer, becoming a doctor, that you know you'll have a job, a well-paying one. I'd like to jump off this idea of stability. When we started this conversation, we talked about how the immigrant script, especially in the beginning, is very similar to the financial independence script. Yet the thing about it is once you become stable in financial independence, often a lot of us transition into what most people would call non-traditional lifestyles. We leave the nine to five, we get busy with entrepreneurship and traveling, and we go in directions that no longer fit that immigrant script. So I'm wondering, Rocky, when you started talking about finances, when you started talking about podcasting, did your community did your family members get confused? Were they like, no, you're supposed to do a nine to five job till you fall over exhausted? I didn't really talk about this so much with my family. I mean, some of them know because we're all so spread out. It's not a conversation that tends to come up at all. But as I look back at my dad's generation, they all just kept working till the end. I mean, I think they worked till that 65 number and then they retired. And that's when they kind of did more. But even throughout that entire time, everyone always traveled. People went all over the world. So there was a bit of balance, but they were constantly working. I don't think there was ever that we're going to let go of the gas pedal and relax until they were kind of well, well established and well up there in age. But again, they had to restart much later in life. So it did take them longer to get there. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right, we've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later... 
We'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week. These are chef prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Nee, let's talk about this idea of taking your foot off the gas pedal. Uh, you're a young guy, and we talked about before the podcast started that you are starting to move into more creative ventures. You are podcasting. You wrote your own book. What do your parents think about that? This idea of taking your foot off the gas. You spent all these years becoming a trauma surgeon. Do they understand it? You actually sound like my parents just right now. <laughs> you know, that's exactly, they say, what are you doing? Like, we still go through this conversation right now. I'm actually traveling right now. I'm in a different state and I'm practicing medicine on an independent contracting, like my own terms type of manner. And honestly, they don't understand that lifestyle, right? They understand a very traditional doctor, nine to five, you work till you're 65 type of lifestyle. And it wasn't until I realized that I got all the credentials, I got all the qualifications, but I really 
wasn't very fulfilled, right? I was successful, but I wasn't fulfilled. And there was that difference. And I was trying to explain that to them. And they're looking at me with a gloss look like, so why can't you work here? I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense. Um, so I've understood that this is my path. This is kind of my cross to bear. And now that we've gotten our loans paid off, this is my time now. Like we're reclaiming that time back, me and my wife, and we're being as creative as we can. And although my parents look at me cross-eyed, I do think that they indirectly recognize that we're home a lot more often. Like we can come to events a lot more often. You know, there's a point where literally like I felt like I missed like their entire 60s because I was in medical school, then residency, like literally probably saw them as many times as I can count on my hand because I just wasn't there. Like those are the things that I've been trying to explain to them. And they're slowly starting to understand that those are the important things, you know? So it's a funny conversation, but it's uh, one of the things that's still in flux right now. I'll leave it to you like that. Yeah. Nia, I'd like to echo what you just said. I mean, I can look at the ages between 20 and 30 and there are just so many trips I missed and so many things that I didn't do because I was in the midst of training. So when you talk about missing their 60s, that really hits home with me. So Gita, I feel like we're having this discussion that boils down to something really simple. It's, do you work to live or do you live to work? And having your father, having your grandparents, what your thoughts are on that? Do you go for the dream job day one or do you go for the stable job that makes you money that will provide a better economic baseline? I think that I was always told to kind of go for the dream job, but to kind of figure out how to choose a dream job that also is financially stable or how to do something else that's financially stable while doing, uh, I guess, the dream at the same time. So my dad's been telling me to invest in real estate for, I don't know, probably the past eight years. And I'm only 18. He's been talking about real estate as a stable way to make money since I was probably 10 or 11 years old and encouraged me to find something that I was passionate about, but that would also be something that I could raise a family off of without having to worry about money. Paula, I'm going to ask you two questions. I apologize. Sometimes I do this. Is passion a luxury of the second and third generations? That's one question. And then the second question is, we all know your famous question to Susie Orman, but I'm more excited to hear what you say about what do your parents think about fire? Start with the luxury. Yes, I do believe that passion is a luxury. It is the top of the Maslow pyramid. And before you can get to the top of the Maslow pyramid, you have to secure the bottom. My dad has frequently throughout my life told me about what he really wanted to do was be a physicist. Like his passion was theoretical physics, but he knew that coming to the United States, he needed to get an employer who could sponsor him for a green card. And what are the chances that you're gonna find somebody to sponsor you for a green card as a physicist? probably not as good as they would be if you were an engineer. So he became a civil engineer, even though that wasn't really what he wanted to do. And he talks about that frequently. He still talks about how if he had had citizenship, he would have gone into physics instead. But that choice is a luxury that is only for the second and third generation. It's not for the generation that comes over that immigrates. So yeah, absolutely. To your second question, they, it was funny when I bought my first rental property, I remember my dad said, why are you building passive income? Build active income. The RE part of it, the retire early part, they don't resonate with. But the FI part, the building, which is essentially building financial stability, that part, of course, makes a lot of sense. So 
yes to the building additional stability, no to the retirement. Rocky, do you think there's some jealousy from the generation that didn't have any choices for the second and third generations, which clearly now have found that stable point and then can go more for purpose and passion? I think it's the opposite. So the first generation busts its hump to get started, to build a base. They do whatever it takes to create success. The second generation is propelled forward. They're given everything so that they can be successful. And I think they saw the growth from not having to having. And so they understand the importance of dramatic success. What tends to happen, and if you're not intentional, is that the third generation is, hey, we busted our butts, they busted their butts, you should have it all. And they spoil them. And so the third generation actually kind of restarts the whole thing because they get very lazy and you know, the third generation immigrants living in the parents' bedroom and basement. And, you know, because we have wealth, they're spending it all without even thinking twice. They've essentially been spoiled. And we've seen that a lot within our community. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I think it's the opposite. They want their grandkids to have everything and not have to struggle like they did. Yeah, Gita, what you think about that, are you seeing that in some of your peers, that feeling of entitlement of we deserve it, uh, that maybe their parents and grandparents aren't so happy with? Yeah, I definitely see it in my American friends, more so in my family, though, uh, my cousins, because my parents are very intentional, as my dad was saying, about making sure that we were not handed everything. So we had to do stuff around the house. Like I help with my dad's blog and stuff. Like we were given things to do so that we had to like work for money or for just anything that we wanted. And it's something that I don't see a lot of my cousins doing. Like, yeah, they'll get good grades. They'll do whatever they need to do to please their parents. And their parents tend to be a lot harder on them about that stuff. But they just kind of take it for granted. Like their parents will pay for college. Their parents will pay for whatever they want. And it's definitely something that I do see as an issue with people that are my age. Yeah. Nia, your opinion on this, if I am correct, right? You have a baby? Yes, I do. I have a son. So how are you going to be mindful to bring up your son in such a way that they get all the benefits of the stability that was hard fought for you and yet don't get spoiled and value money and value hard work? Well, I think, you know, it's a conversation that's a fluid conversation between me and my wife. Like we, you know, she's first generation also. And, you know, we have that conversation of like, what happens when he gets to a certain age, like four or five and something breaks and he looks at us and is like, what's the big deal? Just order through Amazon, right? Like, I'm sure that conversation will occur. But I think the thing with us is we're so grounded. We don't, I don't want to say the term frugal because we're just, for us, like buying extravagant things hasn't really been the big thing for us. It's just been experiences. And I think that's something that is going to be something that we're going to share with our son is just like, look, for us, life is really about experiences, spending time with family, spending time with, you know, people who you really care about. You know, right now, like we're saving in a 529, but our plan is actually not to let him know that he has a 529 until he starts school. 
also at the same time, not only not letting him know, but making sure that he has some type of skin in the game. Because we really feel like in order for him to be as successful as he wants to be or to have some type of uh, interest that he has to have skin in the game. Um, so there's certain things that we're going to do in terms of mind tricks, obviously, to make sure that he doesn't feel like he has everything at his hands. But also at the same time, it's really important for him or important for us to make sure that he knows that he has the runway to kind of do the things that are kind of beyond stability, if you know what I mean, right? Like kind of take those chances in entrepreneurship and maybe fail and realize that, okay, mom and dad will kind of help you out. We're not going to do everything for you, but you know, maybe you don't have to be a doctor. Maybe you can go and, you know, be an entrepreneur or get, you know, income property or do this, do you know, whatever it may be, uh, but maybe not have to be forced down one pathway and then have regret afterwards. Paula, I'd like to take this conversation in a little different direction. Growing up and in college and even now as an adult, it seems like a lot of my friends who are children of immigrants had a parent who was always managing some property or another. And I'm not sure if that's just my imagination or is there a connection with the immigrant path and property ownership? I mean, that wasn't my experience. I didn't know anybody, even in the broader Nepalese community, who owned rental properties. Not that I'm aware of. I'm sure some people might have, but not that I was aware of. Not in what I saw. What I saw was much more the typical go to grad school, get a job that pays well, and live very, very frugally. That was the script that I saw. Rocky, I throw the same question to you in the Indian community. Uh, property ownership of importance to the immigrant pathway or not really? Absolutely. As I was growing up, people were always talking about rental properties. And actually, if you look at kind of the big rental property, which is the hotel business, I think the vast majority of motels in the United States are owned by Indians. And so we kind of just grew up knowing that you buy property and you invest in it. And that's one way to build wealth. Yeah. Gita, have you been to a few closings? Have you been with your dad to rent a property or to meet a new prospective tenant? Is that part of your upbringing? Yeah, definitely. I know that for the first few houses that he got, whether they were going to be rentals or flips, we would always go to the house when he was buying it to see kind of where it started. And then he would bring us back at the end to show us the finished product so that we could kind of see and like sometimes even steps along the way, how much work was put into these properties and then kind of what the output was, how much he sold it for, how much the renter was paying, that kind of a thing. So, Nia, you know, we've been talking this whole time about immigrant stereotypes, and I don't know if there's an answer to this question, but are they fair? Do these stereotypes hold up? Good question. I think in some regards, they do, and in some regards, they don't. In the realm that they do, I think there are a lot of positive things that you can grasp from them, right? You know, being very frugal, you know, being very normal. Here's a good example. When I was growing up, my parents would always say, don't do that. And it wasn't just don't do that, you can get hurt. It's don't do that, like you're going to get us deported, right? <laughs> you know, there was always like this sense of, you guys are laughing because you understand what I'm talking about. Like there's this sense of, you know, this uneasiness that, that was around the house that if you did something that was out of the ordinary or something that embarrassed us, that you could risk all of us having to go back. You know, those are the times that were funny, but also just like, I don't know if I want to raise, you know, my kid with that type of negative connotation. But then there's this, all this positive stuff that is so true that, you know, it's, it's just one of those things that I won't even let go of when I'm raising my child. It depends, right? I think it kind of goes, you know, if it's really negative, you know, ultimately a lot of people are going to say, well, that's not true. 
But I think that you got to have give and take. I think there's some negative stereotypes and then there's some positive stereotypes and just kind of embracing both of them and just understanding that that makes up all of us. It's not just, you know, related just to immigrants and then kind of go from there. Yeah, I'd like to bring this conversation around to the original question that we asked. And I actually have a new question now. So I was raised in a place where a very good friend of mine was uh, of Indian descent and his parents were Hotel Patels. And I'm familiar with this phenomena of the dishwasher being a place to store dry and dry your, your dishes and not to actually wash anything with. But what is the reason behind that? What's the cultural phenomena that we should be thinking about? And is this something that we should be taking on in our life? So I actually looked into this because I used to live in Atlanta where water is extremely expensive. And particularly if you have a high efficiency dishwasher, it's actually more water efficient to use the dishwasher than it is to wash your dishes by hand. So washing your dishes by hand actually uses more water and causes your water bill to spike. But I think that the reason for using the dishwasher as a drying rack is just because in Kathmandu, there are no dishwashers. So you get used to doing it by hand and then the habit stays. So some of these things that we grew up, and I still do the dishes by hand, like even with the knowledge that I have that it would be more water efficient to use my dishwasher, I do it by hand because I've just done it that way my entire life. You know, so the, the habit sticks even when it doesn't need to or even when it doesn't make sense. Maybe we've uncovered a really important secret of financial independence here that I wasn't aware of and that it's all about dishwashing, really. No, I, I agree with Paula. I think it's definitely in Ghana. Nobody has dishwashers, at least, you know, when I was, you know, in the 70s and the 80s and 90s. Obviously, they're there now, but it's the habit. It's the, the young children do that. It's the building this type of knowing how to take care of a house type of mentality that kind of sticks. And I am telling you right now to this day, I just left to go to Madison, Wisconsin, and I'm here, and right before I left, I washed the dishes with my hands. And then I put it into the dry, you know, I put it into the dishwasher and I close it up and that's it. I mean, it's just a force of habit and I'm 40 now, you know, so it's just, it sticks with you. I think, you know, in the Indian community, at least in our home, it was a money thing. It costs money to run the dishwasher and it's more than just the water. There's the electricity and then you've got to heat it up at the end. So there's electrical costs for that. And then you have to use dishwasher soap, which is more expensive than the dishwashing soap. So I think they went down to all of the pennies of differences because it came down to pennies. At home in India, no one washed dishes. We all had essentially servants who did that all. So they didn't grow up doing this. It was actually a chore here for them to actually do that work and, and have to do it themselves. Now it's probably a little different, but you think about the 70s and you started looking at the cost of everything and it all added up. That's really interesting because when I discovered that phenomenon, I was kind of kept that back in my head. And when I was in an international business class, when I was getting a master's degree, I actually came across this phenomenon again. And we actually, like, I'm not sure I wrote a paper about it, but it was like one of the questions on, the, it was about the cultural differences between businesses and how you run them. And that came down to two reasons why that is so common, because it actually is a very well-known phenomenon amongst people who think about such things. And two things. One is that it is a family dynamic that is really important amongst, especially Asian cultures, but even Latin American cultures, to have this la familia, this uh, idea of a family that is not the same amongst American families. And it was a part of a time to have that sit down dinner. And then part of dinner was cleaning up afterwards together. And the second reason was what you described just then was that it is actually just 
comes down to a dollars and cents thing. And if you're not used to it, it just comes down to habit. There's probably papers written about such things. So let's bring this back to a more serious matter. That was fine. But do you think it's actually an advantage to be an immigrant or is it a disadvantage? Because Paula, I think I've heard you comment on the fact that you felt like you were split between two cultures. How did you make sense of all that? And what aspects of it did you take away from it as a positive thing? And which did you feel like you had to overcome something? I think it's both. On one hand, the ethos of hard work and frugality and that constant drive to do better. I think that that has been very beneficial, but also detrimental, right? Like the driving to three different grocery stores because bananas are cheaper at one and rice is cheaper at another, that becomes a disadvantage when you are trying to become an entrepreneur, run your own business, buy rental properties on the side. You're trying to manage your time and you're doing this thing that chases pennies because it's what you saw your mom do, but it doesn't make sense in the context of being an entrepreneur. And you kind of struggle in terms of this time management because you're spending all of this time doing stuff that your parents did that is just not a good use of your time. So that dedication to frugality can actually, in some ways, hold you back. It's that concept of what got you here won't get you there. And that is something that I still work pretty hard to overcome. Uh, Rocky, how about you? What are your thoughts on that? I think there's advantages and there are disadvantages. And I think everyone comes from a very different country and each of those countries have their pluses and minuses. So it, I think it really depends who you are and where you come from. I think it does give you a bit of grit. It gives you that community that pushes you forward and propels you forward. So from that standpoint, it's good. The disadvantages are you're in a very different community. You don't fit in. You've got to figure out a new set of rules. And then raising kids in that new community, how do you bridge that gap between what they see every day outside the house and what they see at home? And how do you kind of weave that all together? Because they can be dramatic dichotomies depending on how you live here in the U.S. Well said. Gita, I'm interested in a little bit of a adjustment to that because you are actually a U.S. citizen by born here, but yet you are also kind of split between two cultures. How have you distilled those two cultures into your philosophy about money? And how has that influenced the direction that you've gone in your life? And do you take the best of both? And how have you gone about doing that? I guess that's a pretty complicated process because when I was younger, both cultures were pretty distinct. And I think that I was more in touch, um, I guess, with Indian culture and with how we did things when I was younger. And then when I started going to school, to elementary school, having more American friends, I started to resent just the Indian culture as a whole. And so it took me a while to come back around. Like when I was in high school, I started to embrace it more. And I started to embrace specifically like the financial side of it more because I saw my friends just having everything handed to them. And my parents always said like, if you're smart enough to go to college, you're smart enough to pay for college. So they're not contributing to college financing. And I saw all of my friends just having everything handed to them. So I started to appreciate the way that I was raised more and appreciate the roots that I had, but it was definitely several years in the making of me finally like understanding that. When you said resent your culture, everybody nodded their heads. It come from a different, so it's interesting. Nee, did you have an, a similar process when you were figuring out how to make sense out of both cultures as you're growing up? Yeah, I mean, you got to think about it with my name though, Nee. Did you fall on your knee? You know, there were so many different jokes that you can make about my name. And growing up, similar to Gita, like being really, you know, strongly connected to a Ghanaian culture. And then when you go to school, that 
you know, people are making fun of you, but at home, you know, you're very proud of your name. But when you go to school, you don't really know the background of your name. So it's just like this concept of like, why did you give me this name? I don't understand this. Or why do I speak like this? I don't really understand it. Why am I wearing this type of clothing? You know, you eventually get over it because it's a point of pride now, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's a point of distinction. You know where you come from and so forth, which is something I'm extremely proud of. I understand my name, the lineage, and my son is named similarly too also, and hopefully we'll continue that naming tradition also. Um, But that's his prerogative. But there's just a sense of history that comes along with it that is something I remember being, you know, not ashamed of, but just something kind of just pushing back. And then, you know, once you get to a certain age, you're like, oh, come back, come back. You know, I, mm-hmm. I want to embrace this again. In terms of like being, you know, how do you manage both? It was a fun time, a very interesting time, you know, and it's one of those things that, you know, it's very difficult in some regards. But I think the ultimate thing is, is that you deal with the cards that you were dealt with, right? And I look back and I just realized that me growing up in a different country, my outcome would have been very different. So I'm really grateful just to kind of be who I am and just kind of be a mix and meld of, you know, so many different cultures and stuff. So. Yeah, I'm with you. I really enjoy the differences of culture and how it influences us. So I appreciate all of you sharing your insights on this question. And I'll give each of you a chance to promote where you are on the internet and let us know what is up next with you. So let's start with Rocky. Where can we find you? What's up next for you? So I'm a financial coach and an enrolled agent. And you can find me at richersold.com. I do have a podcast. It's about life beyond wealth. You got rich. Now what? And I focus on understanding your purpose, creating the best mindsets, and then bringing balance to your health, your wealth, your time, your relationships, and spirituality, and putting your unique puzzle pieces together to live an abundant life that works for you. Abundant life. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. Gita, how about you? Uh, What's up next for you, and where can we find you? My blog is called Help Me Be Great, and on there I kind of speak specifically to teenagers and young adults through my own lens. So as I've kind of met people that my dad has introduced me to within the personal finance space and just within the things that I'm interested, I've noticed that all of those people talk about these ideas through the lens of an adult. So what I wanted to do was take those ideas about personal finance, business, uh, psychology, and make them accessible for younger people so you can keep up with me and my story there. Love it. Check out her blog. Nee, how about you? What's up next for you and where can we find you? You can find me at drneedarko.com. I host the podcast, Docs Outside the Box. It's an interesting uh, podcast about just kind of transitioning from just trying to chase after credentials and qualifications to really just enjoying life and being fulfilled as opposed to just chasing success. The next thing is now coming out of a course called 10 Days to Podcasting, and it's for busy professionals who want to start a podcast but don't necessarily have the time and they need someone to help them through that process. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing that. I can always learn something more about podcasting. Paula, how about you? Where can we find you? And what is up next for Paula Pant? My podcast is called Afford Anything. So just search for the Afford Anything podcast. And we have some really awesome guest interviews coming up. And every other episode, I also answer questions that come in from the audience. So I would check that out. Also, my blog is affordanything.com. Just did a huge redesign. So that's exciting. All right, Doc, that was a really enjoyable episode for me because that is a particular subject that I especially enjoy because I just love to learn about the influence of culture on our behavior. And I like finding those little wrinkles and differences like the dishwasher phenomena 
or anything else like that. And one of the questions that we didn't have time to ask that I wish we could have gotten to was what language each of them spoke in their homes. Did they convert to English? Because we've met Paula Pant's parents in passing and they speak very strong English. In fact, I don't even know what language is spoken in Nepal. I would assume it's called Nepalese, but I I don't know. Um, It'd be interesting to see if that had any sort of influence on what it was like to be different because it seems like if you were from an American, I say American, an English speaking country and you came to the US, it would be less of a challenge to kind of adopt, even though there'd be differences. When you come from a different language that has a different culture with a completely different language, completely different style of dress and food, you would feel like an outsider living in a bubble. Yeah, I find it interesting you bring that up. I, through friendships and dating, really feel like I grew up sitting at dinner tables with people who are speaking another language that I didn't always understand. Mm-hmm. So this whole thing about seeing how immigrants interact with their kids, seeing how they do things in general, was a very comfortable subject for me. Because mm-hmm. although I am not an immigrant per se, I've been surrounded by immigrants my whole life. My wife is an immigrant, came to the United States when she was two years old. So I think I've benefited incredibly by having this upbringing to see how different people set out and go about work and play is so instructive. And what I've always loved about the immigrant families that I've been lucky enough to interact with is when you come to the United States with zero, this idea of failing It's impossible. So people are willing to do whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. So you have people learn how to be scrappy. They learn how to be frugal when frugal is necessary. They learn how to reuse things. They learn how to go after the jobs that people don't think they'll get. They learn how to develop the requisite skills and to monetize them. And these were all things that I think your typical immigrant child, especially first generation child, learns by necessity. And I think necessity is the mother of invention. And all of these great things the immigrant community has figured out over decades and centuries Mm -hmm. are like now tenants of the financial independence movement. We follow a lot of these similar tenants about how to be frugal, about how to make a lot out of the little. And so I think this conversation has so much resonance for us in the financial independence community, not only because a number of us are immigrants or children of immigrants, but also because we've adapted a lot of these habits. Yeah. The word immigrant almost immediately embodies with me just being super frugal. It's just part of the stereotype. And it's not even a, a stereotype when it's all true. It just it just seems to be what you do when you, when you come to the US or other westernized cultures or countries, I'm sure. I'm curious, what country of origin was your wife from? So my wife came from Iran, and they were a refugee story. Mm -hmm. Uh, My wife's father worked for a company that was very pro-Shah, and then the Ayatollah took over, and he was arrested and was lucky enough to get out of jail, and they knew they had a set amount of time to come to the U.S., and they pretty much lost everything. And so they had to establish themselves in the United States with no knowledge of the culture, with almost no money, and with skills that didn't translate. So my wife's father was a CFO of a company, but didn't have an MBA or an accounting degree. And so he came to the US, and that experience didn't translate real well into getting a job here. What they went through was amazingly difficult, but the skills they built 
were miraculous. And my wife and I often are on the same page because she grew up with all these same financially independent habits. She didn't call it that. Right, right. It was just what they did. And so when I married her and we brought our lives together and our household together, a lot of these tenants that she lived by were very appealing to me. Yeah, I have some really good friends. Actually, they're really good friends of my wife that they went to college with. And uh, he is from Iran as well. And very, very similar story. They were professionals, lost everything. They had to come here and basically get their, they were physicians. And they had to get their physician license all over again because it didn't transfer. You know, they were probably in their 40s, 30s or 40s, and they had to start over again. And they characterize some of the same things we're talking about. It is an expectation of them to get not just a graduate, but a doctorate level, whether it be medical or some sort of academic PhD or else. I mean, that is just built into their, to, to their lifestyle. And I wonder what aspects of that as listeners should people be thinking about taking in to how to raising their children, how to think about spending their money. Because if you just listen to the American culture and probably some of the other westernized cultures, if you just listen to that, you're going to fall into the default trap of overconsumption, lifestyle inflation. And I guess the answer is just all the five tenets that we've been talking about. They really are one of the same, aren't they? They are. But I also think that there is a dichotomy because as you go from first generation immigrant to second generation immigrant to third generation immigrant, there's a certain amount of stability that forms. And so your modern person interested in financial independence, part of that interest is actually, quote unquote, escaping the rat race. And that script is a not a very traditional immigrant script. Right. right. So the traditional immigrant script says, keep on building bigger and better. Keep on adding to your stability. This idea of slowing down or retiring early really is different. And so you have children who grew up with all these great tenants of being an immigrant and being frugal and learning all these requisite skills they needed to know. But then they get to a point where they want to pull back from their work life. And that creates a little bit of tension between them and their parents who think it's crazy. Well, I would say I even get that with my own parents and with my wife's parents. They're both American and have been for several generations. And people look at me and think they just don't know what I'm doing. They can't put words to it. And they ask me, it's like, so what exactly is a podcast and what's the point of it? And then they're very quick to say, well, how are you making money doing that? They're like, well, I'm actually not only doing it for money. I'm just wanting to cover my expenses and do something I enjoy. And you can just see their heads kind of shake and they, they just like their eyes almost glass over because they don't understand what the whole purpose of all of that is. And do you get any sort of that from your family about you taking a step back and following the more of the retire early type track now? I think they've come to terms with it. I think in my family, they've seen an evolution. The similarly to me, I've, I've gone through this evolution over the last few years. And because they've watched it, I think they've come to terms with it. And I've slowly educated them a little bit on what it is. And I think they're starting to think about the same things for themselves. So it's been an evolution for all of us. And you know, I think this whole pathway is an evolution. The wonderful thing about growing up as an immigrant in the United States is you can take all those smart habits, the frugality, the hard work, the education, and then you can turn it into a stable life for you and your family. And then if you decide you want to retire early, if you decide like you or I have that we want to do a podcast that may not make us money, but does bring purpose and meaning to our life, then we can do that. 
And that's what's up next. All right. This has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, I wanted to thank Rocky Lalvani, Gita Lalvani, Nee Darko, and Paula Pant. That's a wrap. All right. Nice. Well done. That was fun. Yeah, this was fun. Thank you. It's enjoyable. Do you guys have any questions for us? Anything about the episode? Anything that we need to know? No. no just thank you for uh, allowing me to join in on this uh, panel. I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah, no, it it was great. You guys really kind of brought out a lot of these great issues that I think we sometimes talk a little bit about, but don't really talk about in depth. And that was the whole purpose of this episode was to go a little bit further uh, to a topic that that is important, I think, to a lot of people in our community uh, and to bring out some of our differences and some of our similarities. So it was really great having you. We thank you guys very, very much. I think this episode is going to come out wonderfully. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Have a great weekend, everybody. Catch you guys later. Take it easy. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. (laughs) Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. 